Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is Dr. Thomas Joyner, the director of the Military Suicide Research Consortium. He is a psychologist and a leading expert on suicide. He's the professor of psychology at Florida State University, where he operates his lab for the study of psychology and neurobiology of mood disorders, suicide, and related conditions. He is the author of multiple books to include Why People Die by Suicide, Myths About Suicide, and others. This is a very helpful conversation for anyone interested in the topic of suicide. I do apologize for the quality. It's an over-the-phone interview but the content is well worth your time. This is probably over 10 years ago when I was a resident at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. We reviewed your interpersonal theory of suicide, a three-part explanation of suicide, where you talk about ability and desire. And since that time, I know you've published other books as well. But can we start with that theory, interpersonal theory of suicide? The interpersonal theory of suicide at the highest level, the ideas are suicidal desire and suicidal capability. You know, the question is being, who would want to do this in the first place? That's desire. Or given desire, who would be able to do something like this? It's really a hard thing to do. And so desire and capability are the higher order concepts, but they break down into components that are really important too. And those components in the desire domain, one is burdensomeness, the idea that you feel like you're a burden to others. And then another is low belongingness. You feel like you're alienated or that you're cut off. And what's important is that in both cases, the burdensomeness case and the belongingness case, it's important that they both occur in the same person, and then that person feels like those states will be permanent. And the idea of the theory, one of the ideas, key ideas, is that even that kind of suicidal desire even when it's really severe, that's not sufficient to result in death. Another thing is required, and that's the capability piece. Unless somebody's capable of doing this, they just won't be able to do it even if they really want to, is the idea. And capability has components like fearlessness of death, high pain tolerance, and also familiarity with suicide methods. And for you personally, why did you find interest in the topic itself, but also then came up with the theory. The origins of the theory are a little hard for me to pin down. A lot of it is influenced by basic psychological science, research in basic psychology, things like learning principles, fear processing, 
habituation, desensitization, basic psychology concepts like that, which I've been immersed in for decades now, since the 80s. That's a big influence. Clinical work's a big influence. And then there's a family history, personally. It runs in my family, and so I know people who we've lost to suicide. And so that's a way to understand the suicidal mind from a very up-close vantage point. That combined with the basic psychological science, combined with the clinical work, all the above, I think, had to do with the development of the theory. You write quite a bit about focusing on destigmatizing suicide and, and suicidal behaviors, which is different from decreasing fear of suicide. Can you talk a little bit about those two distinctions? The main one is that suicidal behavior, I think it's mostly or largely or maybe even totally driven by mental disorders. And mental disorders are forces of nature. They're biologically rooted, severe illnesses that can really affect people deeply in their families, cause such misery, can even cause death. So these states and the suicidal mindset that they can inspire, they deserve a dose of respect. People fear them for a reason because they're really miserable and really painful and potentially lethal. But that's not the same thing as being ignorant about something or as being prejudiced against something. I think one can and should be respectful of something, even fearful of something, but at the same time not ignorant about it and not prejudiced or discriminating about it. And that's what I hope for with regard to this space, the space of suicidal behavior. It deserves a healthy dose of respect and even fear because of the pain and misery and death that it causes. But we can understand it and we can be clear-eyed about it and not be ignorant, be compassionate and be understanding towards suicidal people and their families. Mm -hmm. The reason that I'm asking this, because destigmatizing or demystifying a problem is often a great part of the solution. And there is also a fine line between destigmatizing and normalizing, or in some cases, a glamorizing behavior. And with that comes the question, what is your thought on how we talk about suicide in the media or how we portray suicide? and how we should portray it. My thought on it is that, by and large, we've been walking on eggshells about it. There have been exceptions to that, of course, but just generally speaking, I don't think we as a society have been forthright enough about being clear-eyed about this major killer. We need to talk about it so that we can do something about it. But it is true at the same time that it's important to be responsible and thoughtful about how you talk about it. So any kind of talk should not be glorifying or romanticizing or any of that kind of stuff. Neither should it lead toward hopelessness about the treatment of these underlying conditions. That also is irresponsible. I think it can be talked about in a plain, clear-eyed way that is not at all romanticizing and glorifying. So if you get up close to this phenomenon, if you know suicidal people, if you treat suicidal people, if you've had a family member who's attempted or died, it's very easy to see that it's far from romantic. Do you have any advice on things to avoid maybe when we talk about suicide? And I'm thinking 
for our military leaders, for instance, what's some of the things they should be avoiding and what's some of the things they should be focusing on as they talk about suicide? Well, I think plain talk about what has happened in a particular case or in general in the Air Force or in the DOD more generally, plain talk about that, the truth about that is important and doesn't need to be towed around or any such thing. And yet you can convey the truth, all of it, without needless pointing to gratuitous details. If it's important to talk about a method location or a method choice in order to convey the truth about something, well, maybe that's okay. But if it's not necessary to do that, then why add in that extra detail when it's not necessary? It's just sort of common sense judiciousness about a topic that's sensitive, and yet grown-ups can talk about sensitive things in a mature and responsible way. That's my opinion on the matter. Since we're switched to the military, let's talk about the suicide rates in the military. And you mentioned and make the comparison of suicide rates to those who are deceased in combat. And the suicide rates definitely overwhelm that number compared to those who died in combat. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts again on just the numbers and how they've been panning out over the last decade? maybe over the last 50 years? They've just been, in a very worrying way, increasing relentlessly. That's true society-wide. That's not specific to the military. What's concerning about the military is that there used to be a kind of protection. Military service members just, they died by suicide at far lower rates than age and gender matched civilians. And that changed. And that trend over the last 20 years or so towards a suicide rate that really, when you control for age and gender, it's very similar to the worryingly high civilian rate, which is worryingly, relentlessly increasing year after year. It's a very frustrating problem. I've seen it somewhat up close as one of the directors of the Military Suicide Research Consortium. The whole point of our consortium was to come up with interventions to mitigate that very increase and the fact that the increase keeps happening in the face of not just our efforts, but everyone's efforts is really frustrating and really concerning. The statistics you use, for instance, since the beginning of the recent war in the U.S., lost more of its service members in a month to suicide than combat. That puts things in perspective. Right. I don't have any numbers really like that off the top of my head. The ones that do occur to me are just generally general rates. In the group that skewed male and skewed towards ages in the 20s, early 20s mostly, if you look at that group in civilians over time, the rate went from probably in, in around the year 2000 to around 15, 14 per 100,000. Now it's up to low 20s. 20 at least per 100,000. And that rise has been concerning in civilians. In military, a folk who male, skew, age, kind of younger, that same group demographically, but within the military, 20 years ago, that rate was low. It was five per 100,000, eight maybe. And now it's trended so far up that it's more or less equivalent to the civilian rate. It's not that the rates are totally different now. 
it's that the trend over the last 20 years has been a steeper increase in the military to catch up with civilians. And all of the above, civilians, military service members, the rate is relentless, meaning that we've got to do something about it. Notably, it's not similar in other countries. Mm. Japan. Japan's a great example. They've had great success in turning this around. This is not uniquely an American problem, but it's somewhat uniquely a problem that's specific to American society. Did you say in Japan, somehow that rate was able to be turned around? Yes, they've had great success in doing that over recent years. Really tremendous success. It's a really encouraging story in contrast to the dispiriting story that that is occurring in the American landscape. Do you know what kind of interventions are we trying to adopt any similar interventions? It's not totally clear. I mean, of course, they rolled out a suite of things, and it's just not clear what the improvements are attributable to. The reporting that I've seen on it so far attributes it to things like the availability of crisis call types of resources, the training of the primary care medical force, which I actually believe has a lot to do with it. And then, crucially, the building into primary care of a more or less mandatory mental health check every so often, especially once someone is above a certain age. Those kinds of policies seem to drive it, but it's just not totally clear. As we talk about suicide and disproportionate distribution of suicides among men in general that we know is true overall in the civilian population, it is also true in the military population. Can you talk about men and suicide? You wrote a book about that. Yeah, it really is a male, generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, a male phenomenon. In the U.S., the ratio is something like four to one, roughly, in terms of how many men die by suicide versus how many women die by suicide. Four to one, three to one at least, trending towards four to one. And that's interesting when you think of the interpersonal theory ideas, especially of capability. There's evidence from all sorts of quarters that dispositionally males have more fearlessness than females. That's just kind of the start with dispositionally, but then through experiences, that's just encouraged. Male fearlessness is more encouraged than female fearlessness. As a rule, obviously there are exceptions to that rule. And so that's probably at least part of what drives it. An interesting thing is in the military, my understanding is that that ratio drops a little bit. It's still male-oriented for sure, but in civilians, it's four to one, and military populations is probably more like 2.5 to 1. And what's possibly driving that is is that women in the military have higher capability than civilian women. To my knowledge, that hypothesis has not been tested out, but that would be my working hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Going back to your idea of the third component, that fearlessness or increased threshold for pain or pain tolerance. Right. You wrote that Men are vastly overrepresented, unfortunately, in the ranks of suicide, on par with men's overrepresentation in high-income brackets and professional positions of power and status. 
and much attention is focused rightly on men's disproportionate share of wealth and power, and too little attention is spent on men's disproportionate share of misery. And you just mentioned that it is more of a man kind of issue than it's a women's issue. The book that's most relevant to this point that I've written anyway is on male loneliness. And I think it's a driver of male suicide. It is true that things just tend to be more extreme in men as a general rule. Yes, there's wealth and influence and power. That's been in the news, rightly. It's been in society's crosshairs, rightly. But there's also a downside. There's a lot of loneliness in men, and there can be loneliness in successful men. People can earn their way or place their way out of connection with friends and family to their harm. That happens to maybe a little bit more in men and women. And so the point of that book is just to counsel everyone, but certainly men, to be thoughtful about connection, about the essential health-promoting and mental health-promoting effects of interpersonal connection and not to lose it over the course of the lifespan. You talk about loneliness as inner worm that gnaws at the heart, and I think you're quoting somebody. But actually, that's probably one of my favorite parts of this book, because I think it's so important and maybe also not talked enough. But can I read a part about loneliness from your book, from A Lonely at the Top? Sure. The loneliness is associated with harm and death that has been demonstrated in a dizzying, diverse array of problems. It's a strong risk factor for illness and death, smoking, obesity, and high blood pressure. Lonely women have more difficult labor during pregnancies, experience more postpartum depression, have babies with lower APGAR scores. Lonely adults find sleep less restorative than others, even when sleeping at the same duration. Loneliness increases the risk of dying from heart disease, cancer, stroke, and it goes on and on. So it's a huge risk factor for so many health and mental health outcomes, and certainly in suicide, plays a big role in suicide. Indeed. I mean, loneliness is a public health, urgent public health matter on par with the traditional ones that also deserve a lot of attention and urgency, like smoking and obesity. Now, the opioid crisis, these are major public health problems. The issue, though, is that pretty much everybody can see that right off the bat. They don't think twice about it. Loneliness is every bit as much as a killer as all of those things, and yet people don't rank that typically in their mind as one of the top concerns in public health, but it really is. And one of the really interesting things you discuss, particularly in men, is this idea that men can be alone and oblivious to the fact that they're alone, and that's really the kind of the crux of the matter. The thesis of that book is really about the lifespan. And one of the ideas is that in early life, when one is a baby or a child or something like the setting of like an elementary school, there are people around. It's a very peopled environment, just naturally, without any effort needed. And then the trick, though, is that for a lot of people, as the lifespan continues into the 20s and 30s and beyond, the natural peopling of one's environment can go away unless one takes a very active stance about cultivating and nurturing relationships. But if one is passive about that, just sort of expects it to be provided without any kind of effort or work, well, then what can happen is relationships atrophy, leaving someone 
in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, increasingly lonely. And as we just discussed, loneliness is very pernicious when it comes to not just mental health, but physical health, too. You write about myths that exist about suicide. Can we talk about some of the most commonly used myths about suicide? For instance, suicide is an easy escape, one that cowards use. Can you talk about why is that a myth? Yeah, I think it's a misunderstanding of the suicidal mindset. It's people outside of that mindset trying to look in and comment on it. Often when you're a total outsider and you're acting like you're an expert on something, you get it wrong. That's what non-suicidal people do, I believe, when it comes to truly understanding what suicidal people are going through. They say things like, yeah, it's cowardly or it's easy or all those kinds of things. But if you were in the shoes of somebody who was suicidal or who went on to die by suicide, you'd see that they're facing a very fearful prospect, prospect of death itself, and yet they face it down. That's not cowardly. It's not to be encouraged. It's not good. It's definitely tragic and sad. It can be savage even. So there's nothing positive about it, but it's not cowardly. It's just a misunderstanding of what that mindset really is about. And similar to that, there's another myth of suicide is selfish, a way to show excessive self-love. Yes, this is perhaps the best example of that, you know, outsider kind of explanation that it seems selfish. And, and I sympathize with that to a degree because I've been an outsider in a front row seat, so to speak, and just the profound tragedy of a family member dying by suicide. And one of the first things that occurs to you, that it did to me, was that was selfish. How could he do that to us, leave us with this? But the key insight is that that's what was in our minds, the survivors, the bereaved. That's a different thing than what was in the mind of the suicidal person. What was driving them isn't necessarily the same thing that occurs to the bereaved. And in this case, it happens to be the opposite. Sometimes the bereaved will think, I was very selfish, when the suicidal person's thinking, this will be better for everyone. Everybody will be better off. That's not a selfish thought. You can call it whatever you want, but selfishness doesn't really apply. One of the things you also discuss as a myth is most people who die by suicide don't make future plans. And that's very interesting to me because as a clinical psychologist, when we do risk assessments, that's often one of the questions that we ask and we assess for hopefulness for building future plans. But you say that's actually a myth. It's not a useless question, but it can be misleading would be my idea. In other words, if someone's asked about their future plans, and they seem suicidal to a clinician, and they say, I don't really have any future plans. Okay, I can see how that would be informative and worrying. My point is that if you're a clinician and you're talking with a suicidal person and they do have future plans, that doesn't necessarily mean anything about their future risk. And it's because people's ambivalence about suicide waxes and wanes. You know, at one point in time, they could, you know, have plans for, you know, just regular things like a lunch with a friend or a 
an appointment for some interview for a job or, or any number of such things. And they make those plans and those appointments when their wish to live is predominant, but then hours, days, it varies. The wish to die can come to predominate, and then in some tragic cases, it totally takes over. And if you put all that together, you've got someone who dies on, say, a Tuesday with plans to do things on Thursday or the Friday or the Saturday after that. A very common scenario, actually. And so I guess what I would say is that for clinicians, the question about future plans, it's not useless to give you some information, but it's very imperfect because of what I was just covering. And that leads me to one of your thoughts as well. You talk about the constant ambivalence, a push and pull between the desire to live and maybe desire not to live. Right. I think it's definitional of the human experience to have at least a little bit of a wish to live. It's just if your heart's beating, if you're alive physically, I think part of what's still at least somewhat of a spark is the will to live. I don't think it ever gets extinguished. Totally. I think it can get very, very trampled upon, for sure, down to where it looks extinguished, but it's not quite totally extinguished. That's my view of it. And if that's true, it means that that little spark that remains can be increased a little bit and then increase a little bit more and then increase a little bit more. If you keep taking that approach, well, then eventually it'll come to predominate over the wish to die. Is that what you believe and that's why you continue to work in this arena that that you can potentially help that sparkle carry on i do believe that i guess it's debatable i mean i guess it's hard to arbitrate that question about whether the will to live ever gets extinguished to zero percent or not but i believe that it never does i think you can extinguish it fully if that's true, what it means is that there are people who can get very, very suicidal who have only the slightest spark of the will to live intact. And that means that those folks can be very difficult to reach. So difficult that we might lose some of them. But what it also means is that if that spark's still there, even in the most suicidal people, if you can reach them, well, then there's a chance to increase that spark and increase it further and so on and so forth until the will to live takes back over. That is my philosophy of it. And yes, it is a philosophy that's motivating to do this work, both from a scientific standpoint and from a clinical standpoint. For those airmen whose peer subordinate, um, maybe spouse, tells them in secrecy or ask them, don't tell anybody, but I'm thinking about killing myself. I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to wake up. What are some of your suggestions? What would you recommend to a person who is not the clinician, not a commander, their peer, friend? A couple things come to mind. I mean, one is the power of caring connection from a friend or from a family member, from anyone. It can go a long way. So I would stay in touch, frequent touch. Even a text message here and there can make a difference. So I would stay in continual touch and use that as a way to continually encourage treatment seeking. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I would say about that kind of scenario is if somebody 
tells me a grenade is about to go off, let's say, or a fire is about to be set, but don't tell anybody. I don't feel constrained by that last part. Don't tell anybody. I'm definitely going to tell authorities or whatever just because it's the right thing to do. And and the same thing happens with suicidal people. If we're talking about life and limb here, well, then constraints, don't tell anybody. That goes out the window. It's certainly true for clinicians, but also true just in common sense life. These are difficult dilemmas, and they have an ethical component to them, too, that people have to sort through on their own. But generally speaking, that's my belief system about that. What about maybe commanders, or as you mentioned, authorities? What would you recommend to them, again, thinking about our commanders and leaders in the Air Force? I don't pretend to have really anything to say that they, I'm sure, haven't been thinking about or delving into. But the same kind of things, you know, just promote a culture that promotes, that really promotes, not just superficially in talk, but in real action, promotes mental health, mental well-being, and treatment-seeking when you need it. Just as if you're having something wrong with your heart, somebody's having a stroke, it's obvious what you do next. Well we got to get more of that kind of cultural attitude in the mental health arena. And society, if you're having an emergency, a behavioral emergency, you need to take it seriously and go get treatment. And that's normal. That's how you do it. That's what you do. There shouldn't be any stigmatizing of that kind of thing, just as there isn't if somebody has a heart problem and they go see a cardiologist. Any words of encouragement or wisdom or anything at all to the airmen who are struggling with suicidal thoughts, who are going through tough times? I do. I sympathize. And I'm sorry for what anyone's going through, any misery that anyone's going through, for whatever reason, of whatever type. But for that to prove lethal is unnecessary. And a profound tragedy that is undoable and that will affect dozens of people profoundly for years and decades. It's unfair to them. It's unfair to one's future self that would have made a different decision, that would have thought about it differently just in the course of a little bit of extra time. So I sympathize with how miserable things can get, but not with the idea of translating that misery into compounding it into further misery for everyone. If you just had the magic wand and if you could change one thing in policy, what would it be? And you've mentioned, for instance, some of the interventions that worked effectively in Japan, maybe something that would be similar to those kinds of interventions or something else that you really wish that we could implement. I just have the sense that what made the difference there in Japan was the truly seamless integration and elevation of mental health treatment on par with what you might think of as the usual focus of primary care. It's just as important, and it deserves just as much attention. And Japan, as a society, got that done. And it made a huge difference in their suicide rates. It really turned them around from very high rates to every year in the last several years, they've had decreases. It's such a stark contrast to what's going on with us. I think what happened is that they learned from a lot of, frankly, work that was done in the United States in the 80s and 90s took it to heart, put it into action, and they're seeing results. And ironically, we're not doing that. I think we need to do Mental health 
on par with primary care. If something is wrong with your heart, you wouldn't hesitate to go treat it. And certainly that is often not the case for mental health. I can certainly see it as somebody who provides care, clinical care in the military as well, and interacting with patients day to day. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Joyner. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice, and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners, and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's A-N-N-A dot V dot F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A dot mail at mail 